My name is Kara Jongling, and welcome to ARCAD Initiative Podcast, Interviews with Political Artists. This is a series designed to inspire and encourage art activists' processes and plays in order to catalyze social change. On today's episode, we are talking about basic income. The pandemic has exacerbated the already apparent issues with our government's financial support systems. Pandemic relief programs like CERB have given us a glimpse of meaningful support that enables citizens to raise themselves out of poverty, make plans for the future, and dare to put their dreams in action. According to OntarioLivingWage.ca, a living wage in 2021 across the province ranged from $16.20 to $22.08. Basic income is needed now more than ever as poverty increases, the cost of living skyrockets, and minimum wage remains stagnant and low. To elaborate on the relationship between community-engaged art and basic income, and to share her personal story, I am so happy to be joined by Hamilton, Ontario-based entrepreneur, professional writer, photographer, pianist, and activist, Jessie Golan. Her passion for adventure and activism shows in the work that she has put into raising the voices of Canadians of all different ages, races, and class. In 2018, Jessie produced a photo series entitled Humans of Basic Income that amplifies the stories of the recipients of the prematurely cancelled basic income pilot project in Ontario. These intimate portraits are a window into the positive impact that the pilot had on recipients' lives, as well as the fears of falling back into poverty as a result of the abrupt cancellation. Her photos have been exhibited across Canada and the world. If you enjoy today's episode, please share it with your community. We want this podcast to be a resource and a platform for collaboration, so please send us your questions or any other topic ideas for upcoming episodes. You can interact with us on Instagram at RCAD Initiative, and you can also find Jessie on Instagram at Jessie Ferocious or learn more about her projects and practices on her website at jessiegolem.com. Hi, Jessie. Thanks for joining me today. Um, I think we can kick things off by just uh, talking about how we know each other and how we connected and got here today. Um, So I've lived in Hamilton for most of my life. You've been here uh, for about 10 years now, and we run in the same music and art scenes. Uh, I've seen you play at Baltimore House a bunch of times. You're a very uh, accomplished pianist and musician. And uh, yeah, that's kind of how we know each other. Yeah. And Hamilton is is a little bit of a small town, and I've I've always said that since I moved here ten years ago. Like, you know, it's a really tight knit community, especially like you know the music and arts community in Hamilton that we're both really active in. Like, really feel like a bit of a small town of everybody knows everyone, and you know we go to each other's shows or we play open mics together or you know we we see each other at art crawl and. It's it's cool. It's sort of what attracted me to Hamilton in the first place when I moved here. I remember the first one of the first times I came to Hamilton. Um, I went to Supercrawl in 2011, and I was like, I was on a date with a guy, and I fell in love, but not with him. <laughs> in love with the city. I just remember, you know, walking around and you know, seeing all like it was all set up for Supercrawl. So there's you know 
art installations everywhere and people playing music and buskers on the street and people selling, you know, crafts and, and art and, um, and food and all this stuff. And I just was like, I can't believe that this is all in one city. I have to live here. I have to, I have to do anything I can to come here. And I just, um, threw like, you know, a backpack of clothes into a car and rolled into town and just, you know, determined I would stay here until I got a job. And yeah, that was 10 years ago. That is such a good little love letter to the city. Um, would you be able to tell us a bit about yourself, um, who you are and how are you doing, Jesse? Um, yeah, so I'm, um, I'm, I guess like I found out, um, through like, I'm trying to apply for a grant right now with the Canada Council of the Arts and they informed me that apparently I'm a professional artist and I didn't realize <laughs> that. Um, just kind of a funny, um, thing to not realize, I guess. It's just something I never really thought about. It's just something I do and it's always something I've done. So, um, yeah, you mentioned, um, playing piano and I'm, yeah, I'm a classically trained pianist, um. So I, a lot of my, um, how I pay my bills is teaching piano right now. I'm also a photographer and, um, and you mentioned my portrait series. So I've been doing photos for, um, over 10 years. I specialize in portraiture and I produced this portrait series about three years ago called Humans of Basic Income that featured, um, the, the recipients of the prematurely canceled Ontario basic income pilot. And that's sort of like turned my photography and storytelling into like a vehicle for activism and political advocacy. And I learned a lot from that adventure of a portrait series. It really was an adventure. So I do that. Um, I'm also a writer and like right now I'm working with a, a group called the Green Resilience Project and we're having conversations with communities across Canada about income security and climate change and what that looks like. I guess, you know, I, I I live and work in these like art forms and mediums. It's honestly the only way I know how to work. In terms of how I'm doing, I'm doing really well. Thank you. Like it's uh, it's a good day. I had a bit of a COVID scare last week where um, my housemate got exposed to COVID, but I did not get it at all. And I feel fine. It's been over two weeks now. So I'm just, you know, happy and keeping on keeping on so yeah that's so good to hear i'm glad yeah and and hearing about all doing right now sounds really cool yeah would you be able to uh speak a bit about what you find important to convey in your artwork and what kind of ideas or philosophies do you explore and build on in them yeah um like i try like i i, I really i think i've always been a storyteller i really enjoy storytelling and i think it's I don't know, sort of essential to the human existence um, and the human experience and how we um, as re humans relate to one another and communicate so much of it is through stories. And, and, you know, it's like, you know, it's a form of entertainment. It's, it's, you know, what you talk to about with your family and friends around the dinner table, or it's the movies you watch or the books you read, like, and, and the kind of impacts that those stories have. So I really want my, my the storytelling I'm doing to convey a message. And what I've always believed in is building a better world and, and wanting to leave this world um, slightly better than it was when I came into it. And that's sort of what informs a lot of the work I do or sort of is a driving force behind that work. So yeah, like I, I mentioned my portrait series and how it sort of like brought me into this world of political advocacy and 
and like the subject of the portrait series is was really like kind of about building a better world kind of about imagining a different and better economy for everyone um and what would that look like and 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 how can we get there um and and if i felt really glad to be able to be in that position um to tell those stories with those portraits like the basic income pilot um was brought in the um by the liberal government in ontario in like 2017 and then 2018 there was an election and the conservative government canceled it abruptly despite going on the record and promising like doug ford went on the record multiple times and promised he wouldn't cancel the pilot and then he broke a promise and did that and um and i wanted to be able to tell the stories in a way that was different than just you know numbers or statistics like you know oh five percent of people reported feeling like this i want to be like these are people whose lives you've affected and and you know these are their names and their faces absolutely yeah because you you were you were also one of the the pilot members right i was yeah so it was like highly personal for me the cancellation mm -hmm. which is why i did the portrait series i was on the pilot and um, before I was on the pilot, I was working four jobs and um, it was a very stressful, exhausting existence. Like I barely had time to uh, function, let alone um, let alone try and like, you know, reach beyond my existence. Like I just sort of felt I was just stuck in this place. Um, and I wanted um, all I wanted to do was build a business. So being on basic income, um, enabled me to be able to drop down and focus on building a business. I didn't get a lot of money from the basic income pilot. I got about $700 a month. So I still had to work, but it sort of lit a fire under me to be like, okay, I have this opportunity. My rent is covered. I can focus more on my business. And when I was doing that, I was seeing my business grow um, in ways I'd never seen before because I had the time to put into it. Um, I, I, I could like put into like marketing myself and finding clients and building and creating projects. It was great. So the cancellation um, infuriated me because I was like seeing this future and seeing a place where I didn't have to cobble together several jobs and still be in poverty, but I could have my own business, get out of poverty and be able to like, just, just live the life I wanted to. So to have this taken away from me, and I recognize the harmful impact that this would have on people who may had similar dreams to me. Maybe they went to school. Maybe they um, got themselves into better, safer housing. Maybe they were also starting businesses like me. And then just to have the rug pulled out from underneath them for literally no reason just felt so um, unbelievably cruel. Out of my rage, my portrait series was born. <laughs> Well, and I think a lot of people can certainly relate with those circumstances and, and those feelings of, of finally receiving some support to kind of pursue your dreams and, mm -hmm. and have suddenly taken away from you. It also, I feel like it um, can take away the opportunity to perhaps nurture a community that you want to see yourself in or, or see grow if, if all your worrying about is money and how you're going to make a living, where you're going to live and, and all of our basic rights. Yeah. And it's hard to, it's hard to have time or energy to like, you know, want to go out and be a part of my community when, you know, I'm up early, early, early in the morning working 
several, several jobs in one day and I don't get home until like, you know, nine or 10 o'clock at night and I haven't dinner yet and I haven't showered yet and, and my brain is frazzled. You don't really think about the mental exhaustion of that. Yeah, you don't have the time to, right? Yeah, you don't have the men- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't have the mental bandwidth. Focusing on your your portrait series, it was it was very honest and impactful. It was featured at Hamilton's three day art festival Super Crawl in 2019. Yep. Um, again, that photo series is titled Humans a Basic Income. It amplifies the stories, like you said, of the recipients of the prematurely canceled basic income pilot project that was run in Ontario. Um, so as a Hamilton resident, it was honestly very humbling and inspiring to see our community members kind of put up in, in giant prints just on the street in our face, um, confronted with with very real and relatable issues that Thank a lot you. of Canadians were facing. Um, as well as around the world, it was it was just very uh, lovely to see their voices raised. Can you walk us through the experience of documenting the real barriers that Canadian face and kind of give us an idea um, of how everything came together for you? I know that mm. it's it was kind of like a, a domino effect or like a quick storm, perhaps. Oh, it certainly was. It was crazy. Um, and I look back on that time in my life and I just, I don't know how it all happened so fast. Right from the moment of the announcement of the cancellation, the pilot, I remember that vividly because like I had, you know, I started receiving basic income and life was really good. I had been contacted by the Huffington Post because they were wanting to do sort of like a, a mini series um, of, of some of the basic income recipients and sort of this like, you know, um, the, these like feel good stories about like, you know, what people were using basic income for. So like they followed like one woman in Thunder Bay who um, like a single mother who went to college um, and used basic income to be able to go back to school and graduate college. And then they followed like another family in, Le in Lindsay and um, they used basic income to open up like a health food, um, a health food store and restaurant. Um, and um, so then they were going to like, you know, have me and and we had had like, you know, we figured out the date that we were going to do this, like, you know, shoot and, you know, have them come over and, you know, all of this stuff. And um, so we'd had everything finalized. And then literally like maybe an hour later, I got a message from the editor of Huffington Post being like, so they just announced the cancellation of the basic income pilot. I'm really sorry. And I just I was furious. Um, and I was like, like I said, I'd never been that angry before and I didn't know what to do. And I was just like. I want them to know what happened. I want them to know what they're going to do. I want Doug Ford to know my name. Like, you know, I was just so angry. And um, so right away, I was just like, well, I'm going to take their pictures. I'm going to get them to tell me what they're using basic income for. I'm going to find all these other recipients. So this was all just purely rage motivated. Um, and yeah, it really did light, light a fire under you, right? It, it really did. It really did. Because, you know, I was thinking about myself, but then I was also thinking about like my friends, like, you know, I, I knew people personally who were on the basic income pilot. Like um, I had even just like maybe a week before the cancellation was announced. I remember going out for coffee with one of my friends and her and I were chatting and neither of us realized that we were on basic income. And she was like, Oh yeah, I'm on the basic income. pilot." I was like, Oh no way. So am I like, you know, so, so like, you know, just, I, it was that. And yeah, just this sort of like need to defend my community. Um, 
Yeah. And then, so I started just like looking on social media. Um, I was like, I need to find people. I need to find these other recipients. And in doing that, um, I got in touch with a guy named Tom Cooper, who's the executive director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Um, so I, um, he and I talked and then he invited me to come with him and a bunch of other basic income recipients and community activists to Queens Park because um, we'd been invited there to protest the cancellation. So I showed up um, and we got on like a school bus and, you know, I showed up with my camera and some markers and some paper and I just got like the basic income recipients to write down in their own words in their own handwriting what they use basic income for and then mm-hmm. they started taking their pictures and like it went viral right away um like posting the photos just on my own personal facebook um got shared over 500 times immediately and um so it just started to snowball really 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 fast and then you know all of a sudden I'm like, you know, talking to um, people in the other communities in Lindsay and Thunder Bay. So then all of a sudden I'm driving to Lindsay to meet these recipients and take their pictures. And then all of a sudden they're flying me out to Thunder Bay to take their pictures. And then, you know, all of a sudden I'm like speaking at City Hall in front of the mayor and the city council. And then, oh my gosh, like we got super crawl. You're doing super crawl now. Like it just happened so fast and just encompassed everything in my life like every single phone call and email and everything I was doing was just all about basic income and about this portrait series and you know then one of my friends contacted me and she was like you need to get like a social media and you need to get this moving so then um we decided to call it humans of basic income and so then yeah like I got to exhibit the photos at Supercrawl um, and then, you know, other places like universities were wanting to exhibit the portraits, um, different like, you know, organizations and groups, um, churches, people were like, so the portraits got like exhibited all over the place. And then, you know, I got to take the photos to um, New York City and exhibit them at the North American Basic Income Congress there. And then I also got to take the photos and exhibit them in India at the Basic Income Earth Congress. And that was an incredible experience because I was like, one of three Canadians at the whole Congress and to meet all these people from all over the world and academics and researchers and economic experts, like some of the leading experts in the entire world. And you know, here I am, you know, this like starving artist photographer from Hamilton, Ontario, you know, with just a bunch of portraits and, you know, talking to these experts and um, like, it was just an incredible experience. So. Yeah, and um, it's given me this really rare um, platform and an interesting insight into like politics and advocacy and how that works and how to um, how the government works and how to talk with people in government and um, and what their roles are and what they can do and can't do and so it really um, really changed and it shaped like you know how I view the government and how I interact with it, but also just like what advocacy looks like and what my role as an artist is and um how much um like how it's a bigger role than i previously thought i just sort of said to myself as it was happening as like i guess i'm on this train and i'm gonna ride it until it doesn't go anymore like (laughs) what am i gonna do yeah no, absolutely. That that kind of fire and ambition is is inspiring for sure, especially when you have firsthand experience and you're seeing it happen to your 
family, friends, community members. It's 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 very I think it's very important to uh, take advantage of that passion and, and and go with the times because we only have the present, right? It's very true. Yeah, we only have and when you get that kind of opportunity, like opportunities like that don't just happen. Um, sometimes, you know, you just sort of find yourself thrust in this position and like, you know, I know it's kind of, you know, super cheesy to quote Uncle Ben and be like, you know, when great power comes great responsibility. But yeah, like, you know, you gotta, if you're in that kind of position, it's like, well, what do you do? And um, I just sort of felt like, you know, I had to like keep going and, and continue to push this and everything. And certainly it was exhausting. Um, there were points where it was like really, really exhausting. Um, and even, even at, at one point, you know, kind of like, you know, after everything had happened, there was like a period where I was like, I don't want to talk about basic income anymore. And yeah. I think, I think when you, when, when you focus so much of your time and energy and life on one thing like that, especially when it comes to social justice or political issues, especially when you're so entrenched in them already before you start actively advocating for them, you do, you do need to um, take breaks and, and take care of yourself, right? Because yeah. we, we can't, we can't do the work if we're, if, if we're burning ourselves out. It's so true. It's so true. And it, it is hard because like a lot of times like that activism and advocacy work is very personal and it is really, you know, like it's it's our livelihoods and, and it's um, our ability to survive and thrive in this world. And so it, it's, it is exhausting um, because, you know, it's often really emotional and so close to home. And, you know, there is sort of this like balance between like, this is my life and I'm invested in this and this is everything. And I need to step back and take a breath because I'm exhausted and, and it's hard to find that balance. So it was, it was interesting learning that too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so I was wondering if you were, you were still in touch with any of the people who were a part of the portrait series um, and could kind of like speak to that in terms of uh of how maybe they're doing or what life looks like for them um, after after the basic pilot? Um, yeah, I'm absolutely still in touch with a lot of people on the portrait series. Like um, I consider them friends, um, a lot of them. And, um, and, and yeah, like it's been this like journey, you know, from meeting them and taking their portraits and learning their stories. And, and that in itself was a really emotional thing. Like, you know, the process that these people were going through of like writing down what they were using basic income for, like it was never a, an easy answer or, or something that just, you know, took 30 seconds and like, here's my basic income portrait. Here you go. Goodbye. It was always just like, you know, you learn their story and, and it was highly personal. Like, you know, it's people's lives. So like learning about people like, you know, moving into better housing or people like, you know, telling about how they, they're happy that they don't have to go to the food bank all the time anymore and they can actually buy like, you know, fresh fruit and vegetables and good food. Um, or people who are just like, I just, I wanted to go to school and that's all I wanted. And now I can finally go to school. And like, so I, I, I do keep in touch with them and some people ended up okay. Like some people were able to like get that business started or able to pivot and find a way out of it. Um, a lot of people weren't okay. Um, and that was interesting and um, heartbreaking to see was sort of like this like 
physical descent back into poverty. Like a lot of people who were on the basic income pilot were um, like Ontario disability recipients, um, ODSP. So ODSP is a horrendously dehumanizing program. Like it's basically we're giving the most vulnerable, the disabled in our province, like less than enough to survive per month. And the uh, bureaucratic loopholes they have to jump through to just to get these pennies is dehumanizing and undignifying. And then from there, it's even worse because then they have to, if they make any form of money whatsoever, that money is all clawed back. And and so they're sort of like trapped in poverty and trapped in this system um, that is so undignifying and um, inhumane. Um, so then being on basic income, like where there's no strings attached, where you get more money, you get enough to survive, and there's nobody holding you accountable as to what you're spending that money on, or if you get more money from some other place, or if you get another job or whatever. And then people were like actually able to get out of poverty. And it was really cool to see that. And then, and then to have that like taken away and this hurt sort of heartbreaking realization of, I have to go back on ODSP and I have to go back to, you know, having to be accountable to every single penny that's in my account and answer for it. And and still have barely enough to survive. And like, you know, we're going in, the, we're in the middle of a housing crisis. And, you know, we've seen like, you know, hundreds of people living in tents in parks all over the city of Hamilton and then getting evicted and, you know, just shuffled off to another park to live in another tent. And it just seems so awful. And 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 that's more of what I've seen is those heartbreaking stories of people going back into poverty. We mentioned um, the last time we talked, we mentioned my friend Michael Hampson, and he was in the portrait series. Um, mm. He was really active in the community. Um, he was uh, wheelchair bound. Um, and I remember when I took his picture, like, um, and I can show you the picture, like in it, he's wearing clean, fresh clothes that are new. And, um, you know, his hair is cut really nicely. And, you know, he looks um, like he looks healthy. And he looked like optimistic and he looked like he had energy and he looked good. And and then, you know, the physical, like having to go back into poverty was devastating for him. And the last time I saw him, like, he didn't look good. His clothes were not clean. They were old and dirty and his hair was long and scraggly and he didn't look healthy. He looked stressed. He he looked, he just didn't look healthy at all. And um, And I was really worried about him. And um, he passed away in January of 2020. And all, all my friends will say it, like if, if it wasn't for the basic, like if the basic income pilot hadn't been canceled, he'd still be alive today. And, and that descent back into poverty and that dehumanizing, undignifying, horrible descent through literally no fault of his own is what killed him. And that makes me so angry, so, so deeply angry. Absolutely. And it's... It's it's just so disheartening to see see that very real impact because that's a lot that's that's a very common case unfortunately for for a lot of people that's their reality. It's I think both you you and I know this but there's definitely a lot of misinformation or perhaps like preconceived notions about what people will do with basic income like once they have that money that they won't you know put it to good use and be productive members of society but we know that research has uh, shown quite the opposite Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And it's interesting, like as a writer, I think a lot about language and language is extremely important. And one thing I notice is that when when people don't understand a concept or they disagree with it, but don't really have a reason to disagree or have any evidence based on fact, they'll often tend towards using dehumanizing language in order to justify their position. So for instance, like in the case of basic income, the words I often heard used were leech or parasite. So saying, you know, you're leeching off the taxpayer's money, you're a parasite on the system. So saying you're not a human, you know, you're- Of other classes, like, because I think in large part, it, it, you know, it, it comes from up like social upbringings. Like if you're, if you're not working when you become a certain age, then what are you doing? Yeah. And, and, you know, and it is sort of this like antiquated, like makes me so frustrated um, and angry when I hear that. That whole issue of like perceived like societal worth all wrapped up in the idea of, of getting basic income without any strings attached is also maybe those antiquated um, ideas is now manifesting in hustle culture. Yeah. And, you know, glorifying like the 80 hour work week. And like I see stuff like, you know, the anti work subreddit um, becoming very, very popular and um, doing this green resilience work, like talking about um, like climate change and income security. I had a really fascinating conversation with a representative from the National Farmers Union of Canada. Like the union um, is all about all farmers, like, you know, small scale mom and pop, you know, family farms and big industrial operations. And I I grew up in a farming community. My my all my family are farmers and farmers experience climate change right at the level. Like if there's flooding or if there's a drought or there's a heat wave or there's a cold spell, like there's your crops. And if they're gone, that's it. And capitalism doesn't care. And capitalism still expects the debt you to, to make the product quota by the deadline. It doesn't care that there was a wildfire or an avalanche or that there was a drought. It doesn't care. You you still have to output. And if you don't, then you're that's too bad. And even if we go like right to Canada, poverty costs Canada $80 billion per year. That is what we are paying in our taxpayer money. And when I say poverty, I'm talking about the cost in our healthcare system when people who are poor are getting completely preventable um, healthcare-related issues that they wouldn't have if they were in po- if they weren't in poverty. Um, mm-hmm. Care issues related to eating, um, related to stress and mental health. Um, it related to being able to live in safe housing or being able to eat food that's fresh and good. And, 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 and I've talked to several doctors that will say, you know, my patients, I wouldn't have this patient if they weren't poor. Um, and nobody wants that. And I don't want my money going towards hospital beds when it doesn't need to. When we could Already, be truly yeah. taking care of, of everyone. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and you think also about like, you know, crime and like, you know, poverty and crime are so intrinsically related and paying for people's jail cells and paying for the justice system when they wouldn't be committing crimes if they weren't in poverty. What if that money was a basic income instead? And then, you know, those people aren't having healthcare problems and they aren't going to jail and they're able to like go to school or do businesses or whatever they want to do. 
then yeah, yeah. spending more time with community members and and you know like working on things that fuel their passions and maybe help them realize that they like because a lot of people in poverty often don't have life goals because they're just they're just taking it hour by hour day by day mm-hmm. they don't so, have the capacity or time to think about life goals because you're just concerned with surviving mm-hmm. you know and i also think about like they're like, you know, those people that, that, you know, say you were a leech and you're a taxpayer money, you got to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and they sort of assume the worst in humans or assume that like if humans are left up to our own devices and left to ourselves and there were no law, law and order, then we're all going to be lazy. We're going to be mean to each other. We're going to, you know, it's going to be chaos and destruction and doom and gloom everywhere. But that's not what happens. Like, and I've talked to the professors and the economists and the academic leaders in this basic income journey who have done these exact studies um like because basic income pilots have happened all over the world and over the span of decades and canada has a long history with basic income pilots we actually had a basic income pilot take place in the 70s like the study um like i'm referencing right now like looked at basic income pilots that took place in like canada the united states brazil um finland germany india uganda kenya like all over the world um in every single continent of basic income pilots and so we're talking about a worldwide control group of different countries different amounts of money different amounts of people in those control groups and different pilots that were all run in different ways um and the answer like you know and the answer was always like you know will a basic income disincentivize or incentivize people to work and the answer was surprisingly consistent for such an insanely huge control group the answer was either people either worked more or the amount of work stayed the same the only groups of people that worked less were people that used basic income to be stay-at-home parents um to children or caregivers to like elderly or disabled dependents so like nobody was working less Absolutely. And when you mentioned before um, with the farmers and how climate change and everything directly affects their income, I feel like a lot of people may not may not kind of the dots on that. Like a lot of people living in cities like Hamilton, Toronto, like Vancouver, like large, large Canadian cities. I find that a lot of the time we're kind of um, removed from that process of life, which is agriculture. Um, and in the process of which our food is made. Um, exactly. And it's just, it's it's so important to, I think, make those connections um, in terms of how basic income affects almost every facet of our lives. It really does. And there's a huge intersectionality to it, which is why, I've been, why I'm fascinated with this, like, you know, idea about climate change and income security and where does basic income happen in the face of, what is happening in our world and the very, very real threat that climate change is. Having those very like fiery passions to want to do something. Um, I, I think, I think it's not a coincidence that people try to demonize those, those feelings and emotions. I, and I really resound with that. Like, like I said earlier, my portrait series was born out of anger. And, and, you know, fury at what happened and, and at the system. And that was like kind of the first time in my life where I was able to like see anger channeled in a really positive way. Mm-hmm. 
like my anger didn't hurt anybody, but it did amplify those voices. And it did send a very, very clear message to um, the government and to the country and to the world about what happened here and the devastating consequences that these decisions, these short-sighted decisions have. So I really wrote down with like the idea of using anger as a tool um, in a positive way. Um, and I think it, it, it should be used. It shouldn't be, you know, discounted or forgotten about. And I think people's anger, especially when it comes to these like systemic injustices um, that are going to be devastating, not just for um, a few people, but for the vast majority of people in humanity, I think it's right to be angry. So in terms of your processes and plays um, in your arts, are they deliberate, um, intuitive, experimental? I know that we'd previously discussed a bit before how you do feel like a lot of things are in the moment, especially with the humans of income. It just, yeah. it, it, it kind of sprung up on you and you went from there, right? So yeah, tell me, tell me a bit about your processes. Um, I would say it's a little bit of both, you know, like, in terms of the mediums I work within, I'm a photographer. I've recently started going more into videography um, and I'm learning a lot about that, which I've really enjoyed. But that's also kind of intuitive in terms of like what I end up doing, um, whether it's writing or music or photography or visual art. Like I cannot paint or draw um, to save my life, like, you know, so so um, I wouldn't call myself an artist in that way. But it is interesting, like, I, I think as I grow and change, you know, I find myself drawn towards different mediums, which is why, like, you know, I've done photography for so long, but now I'm, like, leaning and finding myself attracted to videography and making, um, like, movies and stuff. Um, yeah, so I think my process is, like, intuitive in terms of like you know i kind of go with what i feel and what i think would be most effective or what will work the best in this place in this time and scenario um but from there i'm very deliberate in how i deliver it for sure Thank yeah you. so how do you get your work seen today um as times are shifting and everything has moved to a more digital space and what advice would you give to emerging youth art activists who are looking to gain visibility. We are really in more of a digital space than ever before, especially with COVID. You know, for a long time, you know, the world was sort of forced to exist in the digital space where all meetings were happening virtually and over Zoom. Um, all discourse was happening in the digital space. And it's like building those like digital communities within those spaces. Um, I remember when the pandemic just started and we talked about it the last uh, time we talked, um, but my friend Phil and I decided to make a Facebook group called Isolated Creatives. And, um, you know, we invited all of our friends, like artists, even non-artists or people that might not think that they're artists, but maybe they are. And um, it was really cool to see, um, like people would post, you know, I painted this thing today, or this is a song I wrote, or I went outside and I took this photo. Um, but it was um, it was really cool to see and see, like, you know, in this time when we're all isolated, there's this way that we can be creative thing. And it was really cool to see that. And to see this sort of organic community pop up and then see people 
like, you know, collaborate and work on projects together. Um, and it, it sort of was like a bit of a light in the pandemic. So I think I would just like sort of advise people to like, you know, continue to find communities and like, you know, that you can find it in the digital realm and, and that there are spaces for that kind of like growth to happen in collaboration, um, whether it's like, you know, Facebook or I don't know how they would do it on TikTok, but maybe on TikTok or Discord or um, Reddit, um, like there are platforms to do it on. And, um, and, and as the world is more digital than it ever has been, I feel like it's almost um, necessary to be in those spaces. So um, we we talked about how like the different like social medias that you that you kind of gain traction mm-hmm. visibility on, like you like you mentioned earlier. Um, you're pr- even just using your personal Facebook page. It's it, the Humans of Basic Income uh, series went viral. Um, But you also would um, highly suggest that any um, listening or anyone tuning in who is uh, a youth art activist to reach out to their to their MPPs and and local, local representatives. Well, I think we also see the government as this institution that's like not accessible or, you know, it's like those powerful people over there and I don't have a voice, but you do. MPs and MPPs, um, the Prime Minister, the Premier, they are all democratically elected by us to Mm -hmm. us. They are public servants. They are public servants. Their job is to work for us. We are their bosses. So we are well within our rights to contact those members that we have chosen to represent us. Even if it's like, well, I didn't vote for him or her. It's like, well, who cares? Like he or she is still working for you. Talk to them and, yeah. and, and, and let them know like what you need, what is going on, what, what you need them to represent you on. Um, mm-hmm. That's literally their job. And um, it, it, I, I think it's also important to note that you don't have to do that as an individual. You could come together with maybe community members. Yes who who share like similar like art practices or similar like yeah. social justice or political issues um that you're facing or that you're concerned about for your community and and bring it to them right like yeah oh absolutely you can and 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 you're never alone in this and even like um i know in the basic income movement like i i said canada has a long history of basic income and where we're very much a leader in that movement. And there's a lot of really um, well-established, amazing organizations in Canada that are advocating for, for a basic income right now. And they're talking to and have long-standing relationships with people in all political parties at all levels of government. Um, and, and, you know, so like, you know, there's always this constant. So it's even like, you want to get involved? Like you might be able to just plug yourself in to something that's already existing and we can find a way to get you involved. Yeah. So uh, is there a relationship between your identity and your current practice? Um, just tell us a bit about the ways in which your art and identity inform one another as you develop community-based works. I mean, like a lot of my identity and who I like, how I see myself and how I like, you know, is really also about just the community I'm in and about the community around me, whether it's like my my family um, or and, you know, like my my life, like up up in Hanover, Ontario, my small town life where I grew up and 
Um, and so I, I feel like this sort of deep sense of gratefulness and thankfulness that, you know, I came here with nothing but like a backpack of clothes, um, a laptop and, and a really, really, uh, and an old car and, and this community, you know, welcomed me in with, with open arms and, you know, has been there when I've fallen down and, 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 you know, has picked me up and I want to be able to do the same and, and give back to my community in that way. And so I need, so, so that informs like, you know, advocacy for, for, for people who are, who are suffering, like, you know, like we're see, we've seen the housing crisis, we've seen the tents that are happening and in all over the city and, you know, advocating for that or the basic income pilot or whatever it is, or we're just, we're just helping each other out because you're our neighbor. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's been a lot of my experience in Hamilton and that, that sort of informs, I guess, like in terms of my artistic practice, I guess that informs my artistic practice because I always want to build that better world. And I'm attracted to those stories and the stories of like the everyday and you know, the things that might seem mediocre, but are important. Can you speak to us a little bit about some of the artists, um, whether they're living or dead, who have inspired you and that you think young folks should know about? In terms of like art and music, you know, I, I love the music of Franz Liszt. Um, when I was in the middle of the basic income movement, I was inspired by the book Watership Down by Richard Adams because I was inspired by the leadership of bunnies that he exempt that he describes in the book, bunnies of all things. Um, it's, yeah, this book about rabbits trying to find a new home. Um, and the it, it's just pack of rabbits and they're, you know, going on this unknown on this journey. They don't know where the destination is. They don't know where they're going. And the leader that they chose isn't um, the strongest or the smartest, um, but he's the one that recognizes um, all of the abilities in everybody else in the group. And he puts everybody in the places where they are meant to be and helps them to thrive the most. And I thought that was a very interesting um, and important part of leadership that you don't really think about is recognizing your own um, strengths, but your own downfalls and in recognizing where your downfalls might be another person's strength. So help them and put them in a place where their strengths can be, can be put to good use. Mm -hmm. I really took a lot of inspiration from that because um, there's a level of humility in that kind of leadership because it's recognizing that I can't do this, but this person can. So I'm going to defer to this person who is far more capable than I am. And we'll get it done because we, I don't care about power or fame or glory. I just care about um, the greater good. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. And, and, you know, in terms of portraiture, I really like Vivian Mayer and how she was so quiet and unknown and humble about her whole life, but still like created these fascinating and beautiful portraits. I think of Van Gogh and how, um, shy and anxious he was um but still pursued his love of art right up until his death and you know i i don't know i don't know what inspires me and maybe it's just like the random whatever is manifested maybe um like the desperation in these groups to create art or maybe it's just like you know this need to continue to build a better world mm -hmm. yeah um, all right. And 
Uh, lastly, are you working on any projects right now that you're excited about and maybe want to share? I know that you've mentioned um, throughout um, the the podcast today that you were working up to a business, um, like uh, like throughout basic income that it really supported you to like make that a reality. And I know that you um, have been working on it since. So yeah, let, let us know a bit more about that. Yeah. So um, yeah, like the business in question, um, and I said, I've been sort of slowly like veering away from photography and going into videography. So I started, um, I made a documentary about my grandmother and she's like, she's 93 going on 94. She still lives on the farm. Um, she's uh, healthier than we are. Um, her brain is still there. She's physically healthy. Like she's just puttering along, living her best life. And um, so I did a whole documentary about her and her life. And I, you know, I got all these pictures of like, you know, from her childhood and growing up and everything. Um, and then, you know, I um, I interviewed her and I filmed the whole thing. And, um, and I even composed a soundtrack and I made a movie. I made a, an hour length, feature length film um, all about her. She lived through the Great Depression and through World War II and through everything else and um so so yeah like i documented her whole movie and um and that was and and then i showed it to my whole family and they loved it and that was the business i wanted to start because like i know one day um like grandma's not going to be around anymore and i'm going to be so so glad i have that movie um i'm so glad that i sat her down and got her to tell me everything and recorded it all um and made it into into a film that I think is beautiful personally um, and and was really um, like so that was sort of the business I wanted to start is because other people have families like that and you know grandmothers or grandfathers or family members or stories they just they have stories that should be told and should be preserved and should be kept and um, and I want to be able to keep those stories. And I think that there's something really important about keeping those stories. So that was sort of like what I wanted to do. And my whole aim about um, starting this business was telling these stories. So, um, but then of course, basically got canceled and then, you know, everything happened. And then it was really only during the pandemic when everything sort of slowed down and everything was quiet and, you know, we're in isolation that I sort of had the time and the mental bandwidth to pick that business back up and be and explore that idea again and think about like what would it be like to to actually do this business and how can I get it done so then I finished the film during that time and I yeah I did this premiere and now I'm sort of like looking at the next steps which is getting clients but unfortunately I'm back to the four job life once again and finding myself stuck again and you know, needing another basic income miracle to get me out of it. And hopefully this time a miracle won't come with a premature cancellation, but yeah. there's nothing I can do. I'm trapped again. And and hopefully with all the advocacy that you've done and that people mm -hmm. continue to do as well, we can we can we can get to a place where where that's a reality because that that project, like that business sounds great. I I think I think it's great to go in and preserve like families' stories um, for for their future generations that maybe they would have liked to know that person, but also just for their personal perspective on the world yeah. in that moment. 
Yeah, and 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 yeah, like it's the history of it, and and yeah, it is the future generations and stories, and like you know, long after my grandmother is gone, like I'll be able to show you know if I ever have children, I can be like, this is who your great grandmother was, and this is what she was like, or. There might come a day where I miss her and I can just have that and I can watch it and I can, you know, hear her voice and see her and see how she was and know those stories. And yeah, like, and it's interesting, like historically wise, like, you know, it's like learning about like, what was life like during the Great Depression for, you know, a child in rural Ontario was life like during World War Two um, and and what did they do or what was normal? What was, I don't know, dating like? What was having kids like? And, you know, she told this story about how um, when my dad was born, um, his brother and sister, like my aunt and uncle, they both had measles. So they actually had to quarantine and isolate from my dad for the first few weeks of his life because they didn't want him to get measles. And, and you know, when we're talking about isolation and quarantine and all this stuff in, in today's day and age... And knowing that that happened and that was normal. And yeah, it didn't happen that long ago either. Yeah. Like my dad was born in 1960. So, and that was what, that was normal then. It's so, it's so interesting to hear like how, how uh, recent that was. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was really a joy to produce that. And, and I want to be able to do that for other families and other people and give them that same joy and like i feel like the value of the product i'm giving doesn't really like it's more than just some monetary value it's honestly kind of priceless mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's wonderful i just i want to i want to thank you again for uh for joining the podcast with us and uh, thank you. providing like your insight your experience and everything to to our listeners and to us i think i think it's really great what you've done and I think what we've uh, touched on today is is just the tipping point of reaching a universal basic income. I hope so. I hope so. I, I want to see that better world. And I know I feel like it's so close and so far away at the same time. And I try to be as cautiously optimistic as I can. <laughs> That's all we can do, right? <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> yeah. 